Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Comfy, ready to go? Ready to go. Good, welcome to Once a DJ, Rob Percy. In person, in London, before we go and smash out a corporate gig. (laughs) Loving it. Only place I'd like to be. Yeah, great to have you on. So you've been strongly requested for this by our good friend James Hamlin, J Squared. Oh, what a legend. No pressure on this, but he tells me that no one knows more about hip-hop in the UK than you. So Uh, (laughs) It's a bold claim, but you know what? I stand by it. (laughs) Whether I'm claiming it or James Hamlin's claiming it, I think, you know what? I've got to be close. Yeah, nice. Well... By the sounds of your accent, you're not from Leeds, you're not from Manchester, you're not from London. No. So where are you from and where did it I'm start? I'm originally from what I like to call the proper north. Not like <laughs> <laughs> not these fake northern towns. I'm from the northeast. I'm originally from, from a small uh, market town called Darlington, which is kind of above York and sort of below Durham. And yeah. it, it's, it's County Durham. It's kind of very much the forgotten part of the UK in many ways. There's not many famous people from Darlington, I think. Vic Reeves might be the only significant person <laughs> ever from Darlington. The only um, other significant person. Correct. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me there. Rob Percy and Vic Reeves. <laughs> and yeah, so I, was, I grew up very much away from a lot of the action, if that, so to speak. So where did, where did hip-hop come into your world? I mean, it's probably just like so many people of my generation. Like growing up in the 80s, you know, you see breakdancing on TV, you see the early rapping, breakdance the movie at the cinema, it just very much in the, in the way that someone now, their whole life might be informed by TikTok. Man was informed by watching, I don't know, Blue Peter and, see, mm. <laughs> and seeing someone on there doing some rapping or someone doing some breakdancing. And then you sort of dig a bit more and then there's a few songs that hit the charts, whether it's like White Lines or some of the early electro songs and yeah just hit me hard. I was into music very early. I was, from the age of like seven, I was obsessed with buying sevens or 45s as people seem to like to call them nowadays. (laughs) Yeah, like seven inch singles. But then after a while it became very much sort of 90% hip hop. Yeah, so so when hip hop became the one for you, where were you getting your new information? Because you wouldn't have had like the pirate stations or anything no. like that. No, it was very frustrating. I sort of, it was like a sort of word of mouth thing. I'd hear about these things happening in London or I'd see the odd thing on television on Channel 4 when they were doing like Behind the Beat or they were doing these, some of this early like youth programming. Um, and I just, 
it would be like a five minute glimpse into this kind of magical world that I was three, 350 miles away from. And I was thinking, how do I get from A to B? So, you know, you might see an, in, an interview with Schooly D on a random program like Rapido or one of these 80s programs that, that no, no longer exist. And yeah, so I was just, you'd piece things together bit by bit by bit and go, okay, so that's kind of proper hip hop. That's rapping. That's it. I mean, I'm talking really rudimentary things now. I'm not talking, mm. things that we all take for granted now and we all know yeah. about. So how old would you have been at this point? Like seven, really. Eight, yeah. like hearing those early songs, very, very, very young. And then in my kind of early teens, I was, it, I locked in. I fully locked in. Were your parents really into music then? Yeah, my mum had a, a competition choir that, that went around, you know, around Europe and mm. quite, competed to quite a high level at choir competitions. And my whole life would be her auditioning singers in our house. And again, nothing whatsoever to do with the music I ended up really being into. But she, her, her love for music was definitely... Yeah, it was imbued in me, definitely. And did you have any sort of, did you have mates that were into it as well? Was there like a gang yeah. of you? Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you. I really credit at different stages in my life, different people for getting me into different things. I had a friend of mine at school called Nick and he was fully into hip hop in a way that I wasn't. He had the public enemy jacket, <laughs> badges, and I never felt comfortable doing that at the time because I was like quite a townie, you know? Yeah. And I didn't suddenly want to be wearing a cap even i'd be like self-conscious like people about like, percy why are you wearing that cap you know it's that kind of small town mentality yeah but i'd go to his house and he'd always have the latest um you know i don't know salt and pepper album or whatever and he'd go borrow this tape and it would have an electro album on there and yeah so i, I credit him at that first stage and throughout you'll hear as we go through there's always someone who brings me in a little bit closer to the source. So um, when was DJing? Was DJing early? You know what? Yes and no. So I DJed early. Then I would say I had a hiatus in DJing. I know a lot of people now, they DJ from the age of, you know, 17 onwards. And, yeah. And they're, just, they're at it. And because there's so many opportunities now. But back then it was more, um, I DJed early when I was a student, university. And then... I sort of DJed intermittently and then really, really locked in again once I came down to London when I, when I finally moved to the, the promised land, as I spoke about, <laughs> <laughs> spoke about earlier. So where did you go to uni? So I went to uni in Newcastle, so I didn't go that far. I was only like, you know, half an hour up the road, basically, from Darlington. And um, there again, so there wasn't like a huge hip-hop community there as well, but I instantly... And, by this point, I was also into heavily into like, because my friend Ian got me into soul and funk and jazz. And it was very much that era of where you had Talking Loud Records, Acid Jazz, yeah. all those alongside the hip hop, you know? So you'd be into Gangstar, but you'd also be into a group like Galliano. You'd also be into The Young Disciples. You'd also be into Soul to Soul. And, and a lot of that was going on in Newcastle. Well, not a lot, but there was enough for me to kind of get a little foothold of activity. Is that 93-ish then? Sort of like early 90s, basically, yeah. Early 90s. So what was it like for digging up there? Not great. But I think back then, I, I don't think 
the concept of digging was really there quite for me yet because I think I was still buying new music at the time. So I was generally just buying the latest hip-hop album or the latest, you know, Talking Loud 12-inch or the latest Sade album or, or whatever. I don't think I was... I was buying a few older things that I'd be like that I'd probably miss, like, oh, I need to own that Big Daddy Kane record that was too mm. poor to buy in 987 when it came out. But generally, I think I was... Yeah, so I guess digging is one thing, but record shops were, they were okay. They were okay. But I think back then, all record shops were okay. There was a record shop called Hitsville in Newcastle, which I used to buy all my stuff from, and a record shop called Volume Records, which was pretty legendary. But again, compared to London, probably quite minor, you know? Yeah. What do you study at uni? Uh, sociology and criminal justice, which I haven't used whatsoever <laughs> since I finished. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, if I'm being really esoteric about things, people say, you know, being a DJ, it's, it's very sociological. You're, you know, you're, you're assessing people's moods and the dynamic, but, you know, I'm not that pretentious, so <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I think when you'd like, I'm kind of into this thing of like left brain and right brain okay. at the moment. And I think the way they're thinking of it, what they're describing is quite a left brained activity where you're logically kind of picking at it. But I think when you're DJing, you're more feeling it, aren't you? It's more of like a right brain holistic sort of thing. Well, I think it depends what kind of DJ you are. I think this is something that I'm going to have to kind of confess. I've never really thought of myself, even though I've done, you know, my 10,000 hours of DJing, I've DJed three or four times a week for the last 15, 20 years. I do, I've never think of myself as a DJ first. I always think of myself as a music fan first. Yeah. So as a DJ in the environment of DJing, I feel like I'm always th thinking of myself as someone in the crowd rather than someone behind the DJ booth, even to this day. Mm. So if I'm thinking, how would I be reacting to what I'm doing right now? I mean, I'm sure most DJs think like that to a certain extent, but a lot of DJs are more technical and they're, they're about their craft, where I'm definitely, with, again, without sounding too pretentious, about being at one with the crowd, with the people I'm serving. You know, I feel myself like it's their Friday night. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very conscious of that. Their Saturday night. I want them to you know, have a banging Saturday night. So given that you didn't launch straight into a lifelong career in DJing then, what was next after uni? So when, when I, just to stay on uni for a second, that was my first kind of serious DJing. So I started DJing at a venue called The Riverside, um, which is actually a very legendary venue in Newcastle. Um, more for like indie music, you know, like Oasis played one there for, one the the first that, that famous when they had a fight with the audience was at the Riverside. You know, in the eighties and nineties, you know, everyone from like New Model Army, The Fall, that it was it was on the circuit. But we started doing a funk and soul night on a Friday night at the Riverside, which at the time was quite controversial, a hip hop funk and soul night, because there'd be guys coming in saying, "Are you going to play some New Model Army, mate?" And we'd be like. Well, I won't do a Jolly accent, actually. They would have said it in a Jolly <laughs> accent. Well, hey, man, why? <laughs> but um, we'd be playing on Vogue <laughs> or, yeah. or LL Cool J or, you know, Wu-Tang. And it was, a, it was a bit of a disconnect. So I think maybe that informed the rest of my DJing, knowing that I've kind of got to win people over a little bit here because at the time, I never had a, 
I didn't have an easy first gig, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, because sometimes you do, don't you? But I, I remember there was one that I think I've mentioned on the podcast before where I went down to a pub that's on like a pub strip, like on a pub mile, okay. pub crawl. And yeah, I took down that hip hop and funk and I quickly realised that I was stuck for the next three or four hours Oh yeah, for pe with people that don't want hip hop and funk. What was your proportion of the crowd there at something like that then that was into it and accepting it versus the proportion that was like resistant? That first gig at the Riverside, I'd say we had about 15% of the room. Wow. So it was tricky. So we'd always be thinking, we, we lean on anything that sounded a little more rock heavy. So I'd be like, oh, we've got an Onyx song. Let's play Onyx Slam. You know, <laughs> this will get people, this will win people over, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely, I definitely had a struggle in my first DJ gig and I learned a lot. So did you do a lot from there? Was that a regular night, did you say? Yeah, that was regular. And then from there, I then started, so this one I had my little bit of hiatus, I would say. I then started to do um, a bit of journalism because I was always a writer and like enjoyed writing. I was doing it English did English A-level and I, I was very strong at writing. So I remember I wrote for this magazine, um, long forgotten hip hop magazine now in the 90s, um, which was run by one of the guys who ran Tape Kings, which was a, they did all the mixtapes in New York, and a, a UK guy who was actually Chris Bonington's son, Chris Bonington, the, um, the climber. Uh, so it's kind of random. So he was local to Newcastle, which is why I got the link to this magazine. I started writing reviews for this magazine called Represent. And then, and then from there, uh, Mark Ronson used to write for that magazine back in the day. I looked back at an old magazine and oh, I, yeah. I saw the little credits of who'd done the reviews and stuff. And that, and that was weird seeing some That's of those mad, names. Yeah. And then from there, I then, I went to train to be a teacher. So then that was my hiatus. So I didn't really do anything in the sort of DJ music world for like, apart from relentlessly buy records for maybe a couple of years. So that was a strange time in my life in, in that sense. Were you buying singles as well then? So I was mostly buying singles. It was mostly be buying hip hop 12 inches, um, you import 12 inches, obviously hip hop albums, R&B singles. By this point, I was very much buying... Uh, R&B, hip-hop, dancehall. So it'd be like, you'd go to the Weekender, Westwood would be playing, you know, he'd be playing the latest Mary J. Blige song next to the latest Supercat song next to all the new hip-hop, whether it was Das FX, Wu-Tang, Snoop, yeah. whoever. So I can't imagine buying 12s for personal consumption, buying singles for personal consumption. I suppose I did, actually, when I was younger, I bought CDs like that, but I, I can't imagine older, like buying 12s without having gigs to play them. Did yeah. it feel weird? I think it was the, just the only way you could get that record in that way. So you've got to remember, a lot of these 12-inch records would have like a remix or a, a special version that wasn't on the album. Mm. So if you were really obsessed like I was, and I am an obsessive, a music obsessive, no question, you, you had to have that 12-inch. And you'd be paying like six, seven pounds and you could all you could buy an album for like two or three pounds more and you'd be you'd just be desperate oh there's a remix of buster rhymes i need that remix oh it's got a different beat oh it's got an instrumental so maybe maybe subconsciously i was always thinking i'm going to be djing at some point but actually i wasn't for half that time so i was really just like kind of 
wasting my money, I guess. But that was the only way you could get it then. You yeah. Couldn't, you couldn't just go to Spotify. It wasn't on the radio in the UK. If you wanted to hear the new, I don't know, Redman 12-inch or the Redman remix, you kind of, you kind of had to buy it. Mm. Or tape Westwood. What, um, what age group were you teaching then? Did you, did you go into teaching after studying it? Yeah, so I, I took a year out and I worked and stuff, just worked shop jobs and worked in a department store, worked in a factory where it makes barber jackets, you know, the uh, mm. waxy jackets and stuff. Did a load of random stuff. And then there I kind of, and then I used to go to raves and I was really good friends with um, Bass Generator, Bass EG, who did all the happy hardcore raves in Newcastle. So right. I would go to, even though it was nothing to do with hip hop, I'd just go to all those raves with him in Scotland and that kind of stuff. And you'd, you'd I learned there about, oh, there's a whole world that isn't my world. Mm. And that was, that was super enlightening as well. So then I went to, so I met my, I went with my then girlfriend to, to um, Leeds to go and do my teacher training for a year, my PGCE. And then there I sort of, Changed girlfriends at the time, now with my current wife. So it worked out well. <laughs> <laughs> Had a little changeover. Um, and then it was all about Leeds and Manchester for a bit. Was that really refreshing? Were the scenes a lot stronger there then? A lot stronger. So then I was, almost every weekend, I was going over to Manchester. Because Leeds was okay. I met some great people in Leeds. Um, but Manchester had a bit, that little bit more, better record shops a bit more hip-hop and R&B because Leeds was very much a kind of house city in the 90s. Yeah. Um, back to basics and those kind of legendary clubs. And um, I'd go over to Manchester every week. But what was good about Leeds is I met two like really important people to me. I met a guy called Dan Greenpeace. I don't know whether you know yeah. Dan Greenpeace. And um, Andrew Emery through Dan Greenpeace. And we became really, really good friends. And Dan was kind of like, someone jokingly called him the Westwood of Leeds at the time. He kind of had all the records, did the radio, you know, he was the guy who had all the stuff. And Andrew was um, a journalist writing for Hip Hop Connection magazine. So that was now then my link. I was like, oh, great. You know, I've got, I finally got hip hop friends in a city. Yeah. And then it really kicked on from there. So what came next then? So then I started DJing little bits here and there, a DJ at the odd club in Leeds and small little bits. And then I started writing the odd article for Hip Hop Connection as a journalist. But really, more, most significantly was myself, Dan, Andrew, a guy called Mike Lewis, who owns Lewis Recordings, who yeah. puts artists out like Edon and different allergies and different stuff like that and DJ Yoda. Um, we started a magazine called Fat Lace, which was kind of, it was a hip hop magazine covering current hip hop, but it was also um, kind of lampooning hip hop, if that makes sense. We do like stupid stuff in there, you know, like taking the mic of it, just not taking it too seriously, kind of, you know. Hard to explain, but yeah, now hip hop is so insane. <laughs> you almost don't need to lampoon hip hop anymore because it's kind of insane. Yeah, and it's got so big. But back then it was like, you know, so, like we'd poke fun at like po-faced rappers like Black Thought or whoever, or or what we perceive to be po-faced rappers. Yeah. I'm sure Black Thought's a perfectly nice guy. He might be a great pub guy for all I know. But we do we do that alongside kind of covering new hip hop and R and B and different stuff. And that got you in a bit of beef with another magazine, didn't it? 
oh, listen, let me get to that. I mean, we, we, we did some great stuff. Like we, we, get, like we gave Eminem his first cover, first worldwide cover really? ever ahead of anyone because Dan had an amazing relationship with um, Paul Rosenberg, who's Eminem's yeah. manager. So did some fantastic stuff with the magazine. We got interviewed for The Face and everything. But at the time, there was a rival magazine called Fat Boss. Well, it wasn't a rival magazine. They just called their magazine Fat Boss. And then inevitably, there can only be one fat. <laughs> so we had a little bit of beef with fat, fat Boss. We also had a little bit of beef with Ego Trip as well. Yes. Uh, because, um, yeah, it was all, it's crazy to think back. It was over a font. <laughs> what? Because... They, they perceived as the font we used in one of the Fat Lace magazines as too similar to the um, Ego Trip font. Now, Ego Trip were really, in our mind, was the best hip-hop magazine maybe ever. Yeah. So we kind of looked up to those guys, and we had an advert in one of their magazines, so we were like friends with them. And there was some crazy beef, and it involved in Andrew and a couple of the other Fat Lace crew. Me, I was lucky I wasn't with them in this New York trip backstage at the Big L tribute concert. So this is the tribute concert to Big L's death. So everyone's there, Fat Joe, you know, the whole of DITC. This should be like a celebration. Meanwhile, Andrew, poor Andrew, he's Andrew Emery, he's backstage getting his, you know, poked in the chest saying, you're a biter, you've stolen our font. I mean, talk about a petty beef. Yeah. <laughs> like Elliot Wilson, who now obviously is very famous with Rap Radar and Chairman Mao and all, the, all these people who are kind of famous in the hip-hop media world. But hey, I mean, it's a funny story now, but at the time, I think it was kind of, it was kind of quite, quite sketchy. I can imagine. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Winter DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with Sure Shot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oneadj.bigcartel.com. And if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. So how long was Fat Lace running for then? So we did that for a couple of years. And then within those two, two or three years, I was like, look, I need to be me and my wife. My wife's from Surrey originally. So I was like, we need to be in London. You know, it gets, you know, I started in Newcastle and moved to Leeds. You start doing some stuff in Manchester. And then you eventually just, I need more. You know, I need more. Yeah. I need to be where the action is. So we moved to London in 99, sort of 99, 2000 sort of era. And so, and then once I was in London, it was kind of, 
I was writing for Hip Hop Connection magazine like regularly. Andrew hooked that up for me. Um, I was going out all the time. I was starting to get little DJ sets here and there. And I was just like, I was fully locked in. It was like, okay. I was a teacher, obviously, so I was still a teacher. So I came down, I was working in Brixton at the time. And um, I then, but every waking hour, every night after school, it was going to a different venue, going to a different party, going to a different club. I mean, how on earth I managed to teach the next day I'll never know how I got through those years, but somehow I did. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was just wondering then. What, what age were you teaching? So I was teaching a primary school. So I was teaching in a large primary school in Brixton, and it was a pretty intense school as well. I mean, it was a really well-run school, but as a result of the teacher, you had to be really on point. And I'd be getting in at like three in the morning, four in the morning, and then you know, having a you know, two hours sleep, quick shower, up the northern line. I was living in Balham at the time, go to work and then straight after work, okay, so and so's, you know, playing here, go to that gig. I, I just was like, I've been stuck in the north all this time. You know, I missed all soul to soul. I missed all the the Westwood Rays in the early nineties. I missed all that. And I needed to I needed to make up for lost time. <laughs> basically. Yeah. So did you keep teaching for quite a long time then? Well, it, I then, so basically there was a few, I had a few sort of epiphanies, I would say, in my DJ life. Um, one of them, remember when in that sort of late 90s time, I, I'd sort of, I'd been in hip hop for a long time then. And I think a lot of people, and I'm into all music, I keep talking about hip hop, but I'm just into all music. I've yeah. always been into all music. And I think, but for hip hop particularly, I, I think a lot of people of my generation, people in their 40s, um, they kind of hit a wall around about 97, 98. Some of them just kind of gave up on hip hop totally. For me, things got a little bit slick. So I started also buying a lot of like underground hip hop and different stuff like that. I really threw myself into that whole independent, raucous, fondalum world and that's with dan and andrew we did a lot of that yeah but i remember um when i went to london came to london i remember it was when i was teaching one of the one of the kids said to me which started talking about hip-hop because they knew i was in hip-hop there how oh, do you like all that old man's hip-hop sir do you and i was like <laughs> oh wow maybe i do maybe i've lost touch with what i because normally i was like bang on it whatever was current and I remember going to Carnival the same year and records I was buying like DMX and stuff. I bought them because I was just in the habit of buying records. But I remember they weren't hitting me personally in the same way that records maybe five, six years earlier had. I remember going to Carnival and just having an epiphany going, hearing it loud with yeah. the people and going, ah, yeah, this, this, is, this is me. This is what I should always be doing kind of. Forever. So while, while you were getting into the raucous and stuff, so I guess this is basically Shiny Sue era, isn't it? Shiny Sue, yeah. There was, definitely a, there was definitely some clear divisions between what people now refer to as Backpack and Shiny Sue. Yeah. And I was still always buying. Like I would buy a Mace 12-inch, or I'd buy a Puff Daddy 12-inch, or I'd buy a DM, DMX isn't really Shiny Sue, but, you know, something like Jiggy. The yes. Old, the old Jiggy, yeah, yeah, yeah. quotes and quotes, Jiggy piece, as well as you know, buying a most deaf record. And I'd always, I loved Southern Hip Hop already by that point. So I'd always buy like Outkast records and, and stuff. But yeah, it was, it was a funny old time in, in the genre. 
the battle lines were very much drawn. Yeah, and I think I think you go back now, like, and, and the Jiggy stuff's just aged, I think, just really well. Incredibly well. Puff Daddy had good, he had money. He had yeah. expensive studios. He had the best rappers. He had the best producers. People forget, you know, he had Havoc and Buckwild. P-Rock. P P-Rock. You know, the, the Hitmen. They were all, like, really the best hip-hop producers. And then they were using the best most expensive equipment. So it's no surprise that stuff has aged like a fine wine. So Yeah. But yeah, so then from there onwards, so I had that little epiphany. Then I remember, I'll never forget it. It was Dan was DJing one time. It was, this, it was in the early days of Shoreditch. There was these parties thrown by a Rizzler, uh, you know, as in the um, cigarette yeah. papers. And uh, they were called the Sizzler. And I remember we were playing the usual kind of hip hop stuff and you know, 90s hip hop and stuff. And I remember, I'll never forget it. It was like, you know, in these like movies where your light bulb appears above someone's head. I had, um, he was playing like usual sort of hip hop. I, I, I liked 90s hip hop, Pete Rock, all of that kind of. Then I remember he just played Fabulous. I can't deny it. I can't deny it. I'm a yeah. writer, you don't. Mad Jiggy, Rick Rock production. And me and my friend, we just looked at each other together and we're like, this just sounds better than everything. In this moment, and it was like, okay, I need to live a life in the clubs, playing this jiggy stuff, playing this stuff that hits. All women started dancing differently around me. And I was like, okay, come on. What? <laughs> like, I'm not being funny, but, you know, that DITC record is not producing this reaction. And don't get me wrong, I love DITC <laughs> more than anybody on the planet. But it was definitely one of those epiphanies that I was like, and we were... It was we were stood on a couch at the time as well, just to like add to the. We were stood on a couch and we both looked at each other and we're like, "This is the future." <laughs> it's crazy. I could all, I think I remember it like it was yesterday. What was it hard to move into that? Like was were there people in London that had that sort of scene unlocked then? Or? Right. So then that's just, that was kind of London really. So you had that scene was big, always much bigger. That kind of um, like the jiggy. R&B, rap kind of crossover scene. Kind of so, club. Kind club of club. Rap. And you think this is sort of like late 90s, early 2000s, like the garage stuff was massive at the time. So you had clubs like Twice As Nice that were running R&B, hip-hop, garage. And it would be that kind of hip-hop that found a place. And obviously then we got Neptunes and Timberland and suddenly the tempos went back up in hip-hop. Girls started coming back to hip-hop. And yeah. it just became... Then I just started DJing heavily. I was just like, okay, this is on. You know, we can, we can make this a viable thing now. It's not, you know, loads of guys in their hoodies, head nodding. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but, you know, it was, it was viable. So was that be before, before that point and that realisation, would you have been one of those guys in the hoodie? Like, was it all kind of more backpack stuff? Because you said you were coming down and going I out I kind of was because of the... the, the areas I lived in, but I'd also, I'd, I would always do both. Like, and I was unusual in that sense. I would always, so I'd go to those kind of backpacky places to go and listen to whatever it was. I'd go to like an Ugly Duckling show or I'd go to a Jurassic 5 show. Yeah. But then I'd also, as soon as I came to London, I'd, I'd also go and see uh, JP, do you know JP? Johnny Roast, he's like, yeah, yeah. He, he had a residency at Sound, which was in Leicester Square. And he'd be playing pure R&B on a Friday night to a very like Essexy London crowd and so I'd go to that as well so I'd always be 
it's kind of the story of my life. I've kind of got my fingers in like a million, because I'm just a music obsessive. Like, I need, I need it from everywhere. Yeah. I, I can't just be like, this is what I am. I need, I'm, I'm, I'm all things to all men. And sort of, anyway, I can't think of the right analogy. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? So in all this, in all this time, because I know, I know you're not just about Southern rap. And, and like the, the sort of subsets that we've talked about. Yeah. Did you always stay in touch with like the West Coast stuff, for yeah, example? Very much so. I mean, I, like I say, I mean, it, you started the podcast by saying, I think I know more about hip hop than anyone. It sounds super arrogant and it's not really anything to be proud of, proud of but I've just always, <laughs> you know, I don't sit here going, I know more about that than I, like, who cares? You know, like, I don't even care. But, and, um, just by the nature of my sort of obsessive nature with the music, every day I wake up and I've got a thirst for knowledge. I wish I had a thirst for knowledge of things useful. I mean, I'm one of the world's most useless human beings. You know, if you need a plug rewired or a knob put on a wardrobe, don't call me, you know. <laughs> but if I could have funneled that, that energy and that obsessiveness and that enthusiasm into anything else, I'd probably be a world beater. But this is... This is it. So yeah, all the West Coast stuff. And, and obviously I've retraced a lot of that stuff. But back in the 90s, it wasn't like now. You, you had to, to a certain extent, you only had a certain amount of money. Yeah. So you couldn't necessarily go, right, I'm going to buy every West Coast rap CD or every UK rap 12 inch. You had to, you had to sort of specialize to a certain extent. Yeah. So when you went back into the clubs, and DJ like that was was this the point when you were like, like did you start getting more tired, or were you still keeping up with the teaching, or were you like, right, I need to think? Right, about so that's a really head. good question. So, I, I was keeping up with the teaching still, and I remember I met I met a Rich Super Ricks, you know Super Ricks, yeah. amazing DJ, and I met a guy called um, I met a guy called Dylan and a couple of other people in his orbit, and we were sort of they introduced me to a lot of Southern rap, and I was just getting obsessed i remember hearing david banner like a pimp and again in another epiphany moment thinking oh yeah the south is really finally going to take over and i remember just listening again from getting obsessed with ti early ti early david banner so we had a night back then called so my first sort of regular djing again i would say was that early 2000s it was myself super x and a guy called tom hickey who was a great DJ. Again, just a DJ who didn't DJ for that long in his career, but was a great DJ, very influential on me because he just played bangers. And he just, he was one of the first DJs I thought, oh yeah, he's got no regard whatsoever here of like, he's just playing the best records all the time. And I was like, this is a new policy. And he wasn't thinking, he wasn't trying to, he wasn't like, I'm gonna educate this person for an hour. He was just like, yeah, I'm just gonna play the biggest bangers. And it really kind of, made me think, yeah, we should, we should all do this a little, a little bit more. I don't mean necessarily the biggest, most bait popular songs. Just, he just went for it, you know, just a DJ really went for it. And we had a night called um, Crunk. I mean, this is aged it, right? So this is like uh, 2003. Crunk, where we played a load of hip hop at the time. So it'd be like loads of 50 Cent and all the kind of regular hip hop, like a lot of Rockefeller, a lot of um, Dipset, you know, whatever was kind of big in the general hip hop world, alongside a lot of um, kind of uh, David Banner, T.I., early Little John Productions, Young Bloods, and that was 
that was really when I, I started like really enjoying DJing because it was just the passion for what I had for that music. I think it came across and that night was wild. It was at a place called the Electricity Showrooms, uh, which still exists, the building on the corner of kind of on Soho, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, Hoxton Square. Right, and yeah. It was, it was lawless back then. It felt lawless. It was like a little basement playing that music and it was, oh man, great times. I think with, like, I don't know a lot of that sort of stuff, but what I think of with that is just the really snapping 808 drums and it must have been like, when you're playing that stuff when it's new and it's just, it just smacks, doesn't it? Yeah, 100%. So from then, were you just just pushing more of those nights? Were you getting asked to bring these parties elsewhere? Yeah, so then myself and Super Rich, we started our sort of business and uh that exists to to this day southern hospitality so we were like let's start doing more purely southern based events and we did not the first event we did under the brand because tom moved to sheffield and that electricity showrooms kind of died a bit of a death he was djing in different places so we were like look let's let's take this quotes and quotes seriously and make sure that we um you know brand it and do things properly. It's kind of my first attempt really at really doing, doing, th- doing things properly. And simultaneously I was writing for Hip Hop Connection magazine and I was really pushing the um, Southern agenda alongside a guy called Philip Mlynar who was the editor of Hip Hop Connection at the time. And I was kind of, it sounds like really kind of cheesy, but I felt like it's kind of an ongoing beef that I've always had with the wider hip-hop world and i'm still i'm still at war with these people so i remember we gave david banner his a hip-hop connection cover and we gave like little john like great reviews and stuff and the abuse we got for this was crazy there'd be letters like written in you know back in the days when people would write letters yeah. in and be like you know this rob percy i think i was writing under the name rob r breezy at the time and this R. Breezy guy, what does he know about real hip-hop? God, he's given this little John album four stars out of five. What a wanker. You know, like, <laughs> like, like, like oh, fucking idiot guy. Like, you know, what does he know about real hip-hop? And this has always been the irony. Like, I know everything about, quotes and quotes, real hip-hop. Yeah. I've spent my whole life from the mid-80s to now, like, obsessing over buying my whole, I'd be rich if I hadn't spent all that money on records, you know what I mean? I'd actually like not, not be a loser. Like I'd actually like have like four properties, you know what I mean? Like I've paid my dues, like come on. Like, and I just knew that, I just knew that this was the most exciting hip hop at that time. Yeah. And I was belligerent about it. And you know, time has been very kind to me because I was 100% correct. You know, that was the most exciting hip hop. And so we, we had the, the sort of twin thing of like, okay, we're going to push this Southern hospitality, still always play the new hip hop as well, but we're also, I'm writing about this in the magazine, I'm pushing that agenda, and I felt like I've got my voice, you know, and I felt like I was, you know, what's the word that um, Lady of Rage would use? Unfuckwittable. I thought, <laughs> I thought, you know what? Like, I can back up any argument here. I'm not, I'm not going to get found out. I think it's... It- it's the down, like the tribalism of music is a really special and yeah. wonderful thing in terms of oh, what it used to be. I don't, 
It probably is there in places that it I is. don't see it. It's now. in different pockets now. It's in and it's in different um, media's now. Yes. Whether it's TikTok, whether it's YouTube, whatever. We'll carry on. Yeah, and I think just there are the downsides to it in that people will beat their chest about their thing so much that they won't necessarily believe that something else can have that same value. I've got a theory, and I'm going to get it out on this on the once a DJ podcast. And I've said this a few times to people, I'm going to say it here. Basically, a lot of people, they get into a music, but they're also buying into an identity. Yeah. And I don't think that's something that I've ever done personally. I'm just a music fan first and foremost, whether it's everything from Fleetwood Mac to, you know, Yacht Rock. I know you're a big Yacht Rock guy to um, rock music, to anything like to hip hop, to soul, to funk. I just love music. I never wanted an identity. I've never dressed a certain way, particularly. I've never been, I needed to be part of like a group of people who were all into hip hop. I've been very kind of comfortable in who I am. I think a lot of people, they get into something. So they might get into something with a 15 to 18 and they buy the jeans that go with it and they buy the hoodie that go with it and they buy the, the badges and the stickers on the wall that go with this music. And then when that music evolves which it's going to or changes or dissipates or becomes more diverse whatever way you want to look at it or more popular even they're like it's too much change going on for them so for myself all i've got to do is change the music's got to change a bit whereas some of these guys are like wait on a second i've got these baggy jeans like you're now asking me to wear skinny jeans i'm not going to do that you know I used to wear a cap. You want me to wear, you want me to get a face tattoo as well. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think there's just too much going on for them to change, like to, to, to change. And they feel very attacked. They're like, oh my God, everything that's made me who I am is being challenged right now. So I was a Carhartt wearing, Timberland boots stomping, Smith & Wesson fan from the mid nineties. Puff Daddy's challenging all this stuff. Or whoever's challenge, you know, fabulous is challenging all this stuff, and I don't want to change. And people get their kind of their guard comes up, yeah. so their natural reaction is to go, "This isn't real. This isn't that. This isn't that." Whereas the reality is, it's it's a crazy thing to say because it's of course it's real, and of course it's to that new generation, it means the same as it did to you. Like just by law of averages, come on, guys. Yeah, I once went to this day retreat, this mindfulness retreat, and it was all about death and impermanence. And it sounds like it'd be really glum, but it was it was the opposite. It was really good. It's about kind of acceptance of change. Right, yeah. I think a lot of people could do to go to something like that because you do think, I think particularly in, in our world when, by our world, I mean hip-hop, I think it's especially prevalent yeah. that you get these people that every time hip-hop slightly changes, like you say, it's always the guys that are like, yeah, but Rakim's the best rapper ever. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like, just explore. Just explore, exactly. It's like if you applied the same logic to food, for example, okay, and go, you know what, I only eat ate these food. <laughs> like, unless it's a Black Forest Gatto, and a prawn cocktail and a lasagna, I am not messing with it at all. It's not real food. Like, it's insane to think it. Yeah. But I get it. But I do get it, right? I do get it. And I'm not mad at those people who are just like, you know what? This is what I like. This is my generation. 
and I'm cool with that. I love those guys all day and they still, they're still loving the little Mob Deep records. I've got no problem with them. It's when it's a, an equivalent guy just raining on the parade of new people, young people trying to enjoy themselves. I'm like, just stop it already. You're not, yeah. right, you're not correct. You might, you're not correct. Well, none of us are correct, but I don't, I get it, but it's not correct. That's kind of what I'm saying in a, in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. Something that I've not talked to anyone about on this podcast yet, and this is probably relevant to when you were DJ and things, so correct me if not, smoking ban. Yeah. What was your experience of that as a DJ in clubs? Well, it's a really interesting you should ask that because I actually stopped smoking, uh, stopped uh, DJing in the UK because I was going to New York so much in the early, two, early 2000s, going to buy records, doing interviews for Hip Hop Connection. And the smoking ban came in in New York in 2005, I think. I think earlier than that. Maybe a bit earlier, 2003. I remember it being about 18 months before we got it here, about 18 months, two years. And I, I was DJing at the time. Oh, there's another thing I, I, I glossed over before we came to Crunk. I used to do an uh, event with DJ Yoda called Spread Love at the social yeah. in the early 2000s. That was one of our, you know, that was probably one of my early DJ experiences. Incredible club. We had like everyone there from, you know, Peanut Butter Wolf, Mad Lib, Ugly Duckling, like everyone, A-Track did a show there when he was still too young to be in the club. We had to get like yeah. special dispensation to have him in the club and stuff. Amazing times, you know, big up DJ Yoda, big up James Liebens, who got me involved with that. And, but I remember the social in London, which is, we'll come back to later. It's a, it's a tiny little venue. And the smoke in there used to literally, I have bad sinus issues anyway, used to absolutely kill me. And I remember I came back from New York after the first time, I think, with a smoking ban. And I just was like, I, I can't DJ for a bit because I couldn't face going back into that smoking pit. Uh, and it's, it's weird how, so for me on a personal level it changed, but on a sort of general level, on a sort of general level, I think it changed things a little bit as well. Did you have an experience yourself of that? Yeah, because I would, um, I would DJ. I mean, I went to America just before the smoking ban. I was smoking anyway, but I used to always prefer to smoke outside. I'd live yeah. in houses where people would smoke in them, but I, I was always, I always preferred smoking outside. When I went to New York and it was a smoking ban, that was the winter of 2004. I think. And I thought the smoking band was great as a consumer. But then I remember I used to play gigs in between bands and after bands. And like, you'd get on after the first band and everyone would just empty out and you'd just be playing tunes to no one. Yeah. And it was, it was really weird. It was... It did, make, it did make a difference, yeah. I remember noticing that, exactly that. You'd suddenly, you'd be like, oh, why is the club emptied out? Yeah. Yeah. there were suddenly... Because it was just intense back then. You were in the club. You were just in it to win it. There was no reason to leave. Certainly on a winter's night, yeah. you'd be like, there's absolutely no reason to leave the club. You know what? It's been a long time since I've thought about that. But there was, I remember that, those days of the first DJ sets. Yeah, people walked outside and you were like, oh yeah, it's thinned out a bit. Then you sort of almost timed it, right? I know that pocket of people, they like this kind of music. They'll be finished their fag in like 15 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes and you'd have to sort of then the back in it's like right let's hit it hard yeah because what what you would get is in a lot of groups the majority would smoke so 
say like out of eight people, five of them might smoke or six of them. So the other one, two, three might just go that's out right. with them. And some people were smart. They knew that that's the best place to like chat to chat to the other opposite sex or whatever. So yeah. you're like, you'd be out there, even if you weren't smoking, just being amongst it, where yeah. you could actually hear yourself talk. And, you know, that was always the thing, wasn't it? As a smoker, I'd sometimes go out there myself and hang out with the smokers just because for that exact reason, just you get a bit of a chat and you get to socialise yeah. a little bit. I think it's like over the years, that proportion's inversed. Yeah, it has, yeah. Inversed, inverted, yeah. whichever one it is. Yeah, inverse. So it is like, it's the odd person that'll be going out for the That's cigarette right. and the majority are staying in now, so it's not quite so it's really bad. really interesting. I hadn't thought, I've not thought about this in 20 years, but there definitely was a transitional time, yeah? Yeah, because every time I record an episode and I'm editing it, I'm like, I forgot to ask about the smoking yeah. ban. Yeah, mad, mad. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Once a DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Once a DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oncedj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Yeah. So, what was the next step? With was was, was Southern hospitality the thing that um, that kind of consumed you, and that was the main? Because well, the, the, that was the brand. We that started you were... doing these parties, some of charity parties around, and we started making a bit of headway. But then, at the same time, I invented. I, well, not invented, but I thought of the concept of hip hop karaoke. Yeah. In the UK, and myself and Philip Lynott started that, and we were like, someone's going to do this, aren't they? Just like it was one of those, again, another like light bulb moment. Someone's going to do this. And we worked out, we saw that someone had already done it in hip hop in um, New York, hip hop karaoke in New York. So we reached out to them and said, look, we're going to start this in, in London. And this was back in the days of vinyl. So you had to take all the songs you had on the song list. You had to take the records for, and you had to have the instrumentals for, because there was no Serato still. This is, oh, it was like the early days of Serato. We weren't really on it yet. And, uh, yeah, so I sort of did the two things hand in hand. It was like, we started doing a few club things with Southern Hospitality and then hip hop karaoke became like a sort of major concern. Sort of it became a bit of a phenomenon quite quickly. Once we moved to the social and it was just insane. Like, and that's taken you pretty far and wide, hasn't it? So basically from sort of, so we started hip hop karaoke in 2005. We started doing it very seriously from about 2008, nine, and at the same time, so, so much going on. I'm gonna to have to try and piece this together, hold on. Let me just not waffle. 
Um, so I'll say it like this. So I had my daughter, my daughter was, I was waiting for my daughter to be born. And this is like 2007, 2008. And so I met a guy called Davey Boy Smith, who was a very important person in my life. Um, still working with Super Ricks. I was doing hip hop karaoke with Philip Lynar. I was still doing Hip Hop Connection magazine as a writer. I was still a primary school teacher. Wow. Um, three days a week. I was starting to DJ on tours by this point with my guy DJ Dub. We were doing these tours from Malibu, which where we'd go around student venues working for um, Malibu, Perna Ricard, um, doing these sound clashes where we played hip hop against rock. And it got to the point in my life where life was pretty insane. Yeah, just, just on those then, would, did they reach out to you or did you go to them with the concept? That was, that was just a stroke of luck. DJ Dub knew someone who was working there and he needed another DJ. He knew I could DJ and I got the job. So I got, that was one I got lucky in. It was first time I earned like really good money from DJing. You know, yeah. when you're like, you're like, oh, I used to earn 50 quid from this. Now I'm earning 10 times that. Yeah. And I'm doing 12 of these gigs a month. And I remember something just had to give at that time. Because I remember being in Birmingham DJing at three in the morning, thinking, I've got to get back to South Norwood to teach in South London at eight in the morning. I'm still DJing in Birmingham. So anyway, so to cut a long story short, um, I went down to two days as a teacher. And then I started so I was doing hip hop karaoke once a month. I was doing Southern hospitality events here and there, maybe sp sporadic events. So I was making a bit of money from those, a bit of money from this. I was writing for Hip Hop Connection magazine still. Then probably the most significant thing I did at the time was I started a blog. We started a blog. We started blogging. And I had no concept of blogging. This was all Davey Boy Smith. He was a Hip Hop Connection writer who I'd met through the magazine. So myself, Super Ricks, and Davy Boy Smith became Southern Hospitality as a kind of collective. And we started blogging and it was weird. It was something I did basically while I waited for my daughter to be born. You know, yeah. you've got young children yourself and some of those nights, you know, your, your wife's gone to bed early because she's, you know, eight months pregnant. Like, she's, not, she's not thinking she wants to go out raving. So I was like, I could go out raving, but that's a little bit selfish. So, so let, let me start blogging. And after a while, we started connecting with crazy artists. And it was the early days of Twitter, like 2009, 2010. And Davey Boy Smith was, I've got to credit that guy. He was an unbelievable like, force of nature. He worked for the FT, but I think he just took long toilet breaks. And he just start like <laughs> he just start like connecting with these rappers and going, yeah, let's do this, let's do that, let's do that. And before we, I knew it, we were like doing gigs out in Norway with like rappers from like Alabama. Shout out my guy DJ Giraffo, who we connected with in Norway. We started doing like collaborative mixtapes, like themed mixtapes with like southern artists and for all these southern blogs like Dirty Glove Bastard and we were suddenly part of this kind of blog world. And it was only when we got this um, email randomly one day from, you know, Wiki, who do all the stats, and they were like, you are now in the top 10 UK music blogs. And it was like, enemy, Little Wayne HQ. So we were like, damn, we are like 
on the map. And then it was crazy. We then started doing, working with artists. We like, we had a record label, David Boy Smith and Super Riggs. They made a lot of stuff happen. David Boy Smith um, hooked up, you know, Danny Brown. He linked Danny Brown with like UK producer like Darky Freaker and they produced the Blueberry song. Oh, wow. We put that out on Sun Hospitality Records and... Was that, was that before Danny had blown up? It, it was kind of at that XXX time. So he'd kind of, he'd blown up on the blogs, but he, yeah. he hadn't really blown up commercially, but he was blown up on the blogs. And yeah, it's almost like there's so much to talk about because we were doing South by Southwest. So we'd do a showcase in South by Southwest with loads of Bay Area artists, Southern rap artists. We had people like Ty Dolla Sign on our showcase, Young Thug, like all before they blew up. So that's mad that you guys were, were going over there from the UK yeah. to, um, were you effectively like almost like A&Ring a bit? Yeah, I mean, Davey certainly was, 100% was. So we'd go out there and we were sort of just known as, these, as the kind of the English guys who knew everything about hip hop music and we'd be the sort of connection to Europe. So if there's like a European electronic producer who wanted to do a record with Gangsta Boo from 3-6 Mafia, rest in peace. Um, we'd sort of make that happen. Dave would make that happen. He would like join the dots. You know, someone like Sinden would be suddenly doing a, a record with some rappers from like Alabama, like G-Side. And it was a mad time. That whole blog time was, it was honestly, my daughter was just born. I was still doing a bit of teaching. I was DJing a lot, trying to be a new father. It was overwhelming, but it was honestly, you can hear the enthusiasm in my voice. It was like the most intense, amazing time of my life. I'd just be like flying out to South by Southwest in Austin, you know, meeting with rappers, doing this, then coming home, changing nappies. Then hip hop karaoke by this point had gone weekly at the social because it was so popular. And it was just like rammed every, every single week. And I was making good money from that. We were, I was writing for Fact Magazine at the time, shout out Tom Lee. Like, it was just a, a crazy, overwhelming time. And eventually something had to give. And I, I remember Dave Boy Smith said, why are you still teaching, Rob? Like, just leave it. And then you're going to be able to do even more stuff. And I've got to big him up for that. Because eventually, just one day, I, my daughter was about one years old. I was like, you know what? I've got to hand my notice in. And my, <laughs> wife, and my wife just went, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> I've got a big, you know, it wasn't, we just got a new baby. Yeah, like it, it must have been. You know, I was just thinking from her point, well, I, I don't know her, but I was just imagining what it would have been like from her point of view, where you're, she's there with like the one-year-old and, and you're just like here, there and everywhere, a million yeah. miles an hour. A million miles an hour. And she just totally backed me and was like, go for it. And it was like, you know, when I think back, like that's a lot, that's a lot of trust to put in someone because I wasn't earning that much from this at the time. I was not much. I was, I, cause the, the teaching was still topping up the bits of DJing I was yeah. doing. Obviously the blog work wasn't really making any money. I was spending a lot of time doing it and I was still really there with my daughter every day. My wife was working a few days teaching. We had no childcare cause my mum was, my mum had died. And I didn't have any real family support for it my brother was helped me out a bit but were you still he, buying records yeah by this point no because serato obviously still buying old records for fun but 
Serato. But, but you, you didn't have to buy them for the day Yeah, job. this is like 2009, 2010. Everything was coming down the pipe now. Right. It was just, you're on the blogs every day. You're on the uh, Dat Piff live mixtapes. You know, that, that whole 2006, seven to like 2014 before streaming really took hold. And so I wasn't having to buy records, but it was still a time investment though, isn't it? Keeping up. So every day I was blogging, every day I was doing mixtapes, I was doing constantly tweeting. I look back and I think of how much free game we gave away on Twitter, you know, being super naive. I'd get people like from labels and Dave got it even more than me, labels and like CAA, Creative Artists Agency going, Rob, fancy meeting up for a coffee? Wanted to pick your brain. And naively, I'd, I'd be like chatting to them. Who are you listening to at the moment? And I'd be like, you know, because I'm just an enthusiast and I was just giving that away. And I think back, I should have like held it all in. All in. But, you know, like I said at the start of the podcast, I first and foremost, I'm a music fan. I'm enthusiastic. I'm not cynical. And you know what? It is what it is. <laughs> but we were on it. Like we were on it, you know? We knew everything, you know? So after you handed in the notice with the teaching then, were you sad to stop it? You know what, it's a funny thing. Because I always enjoyed being in the class with the kids, but I, all the politics, the staff room, the, the paperwork was never really for me. And I thought I would miss it. I think about three days later, I don't think I gave it a second thought. It was yeah. almost like it hadn't happened to me. And that's so bizarre. It had been a good sort of 10, 11 years of my life. And, and my parents were both teachers. And it was, you know, I was always around education. And yeah, I didn't give it one second's thought. I was too busy thinking about, you know, the new Beat King mixtape. Or <laughs> <laughs> shout out Beat King, you know what I mean? Or the new Future mixtape or, or whatever. Who are we going to program at South by Southwest? And so... From that point, how, was it quite quick for you to get up to earning enough money to make Yeah, so this is the thing. So hip-hop karaoke then really took off. So I was making, you know, I had a packed out event every week. I then started doing, this was the other key event we did. We then started doing an event, myself and Dave, called Players Ball. Yes. So we were like, okay, so this is Southern Hospitality Presents Players Ball. But it was like, we wanted an event that captured the energy of the music we'd been listening to for the last six or seven, or in his case, even more. He was a real 3-6 Mafia fan, etc., etc. And we started Players Ball in the like end of 2009 in a club called Camp in Shoreditch, which was stood for the Creative Arts Music Project. It was like a, it was like a pop-up, I think, um, right on Old Street Roundabout. And um, that... that um, so we started it there and we were just like, it wasn't more like, what are we going to play at this event? We had a policy, it was like, what are we not going to play at this event? Yeah. We are going to do, we're not going to play a Tribe Called Quest. We're not going to play Wu-Tang Clan. We're not going to play Mob Deep. We're not going to play Biggie, all that stuff. Yes, we'll play G-Unit and the game and stuff like that. The newer sounding, more hip hop, but... It's going to be Gucci Mane. It's going to be Young Jeezy. It's going to be T.I. It's going to be Travis Porter. It's going to be, you know, all the way turned up. It's going to be that. And we're going to stand on that. So if anyone asks us for, like, 
an old record, we're going to stand firm and say, we're not playing it. And we did it. And I remember the first event, it was packed out because Dave put on the flight. I think the Gucci Mane might have been the first flight. It was like, the slogan was get crunk, get booked, get wild. And it was like, and it just, we just communicated a different energy to people. And they came in just, and it was mad. And it made me realize there's a whole generation of people younger than me who had grown up on this stuff. And they'd seen this stuff on MTV Base. They'd seen it on Channel U. They'd seen it on Flavor on Channel 4. They'd seen it on these early 2000s. They'd seen it on 106 and Park. So they knew these records. They knew, you know, uh, Walk It Out by Unk. They knew um, Young Jock It's Going Down. They were like, they weren't really getting played by a lot of hip hop DJs in the UK. And so we were playing that. We were playing Early Future, all the Gucci. Oh man, it was, it was insane. Like anyone who's been to Players Ball, they will attest to it. Our slogan eventually became Players Ball Till We Fall. And it was that. It was like, if you aren't like sweating, dripping, by the end of this, we have failed as DJs. <laughs> and Davey Boy was like the most wild DJ because he like, he just get drunk and he could, you know, he won't mind me saying this, he couldn't really DJ. And I remember at one point he was so drunk, I had to like lean over to him and move the crossfader across because he just stood there like lining up a banger. And I could see he was, I think, I don't know whether he was asleep or something, but he was like, his eyes were closed. And I was like, He's going to need to move the crossfader across. And it was just great times, man. And, and, we, and, and people were very much drawn to that. And so Players Ball became bigger. So we did that at Glastonbury. We did, then we moved to East Village and that was packed out. So I started making money from that. We then connected with so many people around Europe who weren't so, in my mind, sort of backward thinking. A lot of the European guys were on all this stuff. So... We went out and played Sonar and, you know, on the same stage as like Skepta and people like that. And we did some amazing gigs pushing that kind of Barcelona, pushing that kind of Southern rap agenda because we felt like Europe embraced us and obviously America embraced us. And they didn't think anything strange about us being you know, like now you get all this stuff like, oh, you know, this, you're English, you're this, you're white, whatever. Like, I've never had that conversation with anybody. Like, people, when, when you go to, like, Austin, they just go, these guys know their music. They've booked us. You know. Well, it's like talking to Baby J, you know. Big old Baby J. He was, like, sending, sending beats down to people in London, and they just kind of weren't... This is at one point, and again, I, I don't think he'll mind me saying it. At one point, just because he wasn't from or in London... They just weren't interested, but he was getting beats to people in New York that were taking them. Yeah. Bizarre. Yeah, it's crazy because people just, they see you that way. I remember, remember one of my favourite moments, I was at um, South by Southwest and we were like pushing our show, putting posters up like people do because um, it's a big music conference. I don't know how much you know about it. It's like a big music conference, takes over the whole town. You yeah. have a tech and a film conference as part of it as well. And so you're there and we, we had this crazy lineup, and I remember just, trying to hand the flyer to some guy. And I was like, yo, tonight we've got this um, showcase. And I was like, you know, probably pushing my wares, you know, like the guys do with their CDs on Oxford Street going, we've got Beat King playing, we've got, you know, I can't remember who we had that year. Some really good people like Mary Ty Dollar Sign, whatever. You're a fat pimp. And he went, and he just turned to me and went, I am fat pimp. 
And like I was pushing my wares to Fat Pimp himself because we'd obviously never met Fat Pimp. Yeah, so we just we'd we'd just been dealing with him, and it was just like a, one of those insane moments that like we'd been dealing with Fat Pimp over email. I then randomly bump into Fat Pimp in Austin. It's just like you know, and they don't think anything twice. They're like, oh Rob, you know, Dave, where's Davy Boy? And it's just everyone was just united by that kind of feeling of it's a new world. It's Twitter. It's blogs. It's exciting yeah new hip-hop's exciting crazy times so players ball was actually kind of a stronger brand than hip-hop karaoke for no, a while no uh, no definitely not hip-hop right. karaoke hip-hop karaoke in central london at social particularly we've been at the queen hoxton we've done it at every single major festival we've played glastonbury 10 years done this year we're doing 25 festivals with it you know like it's still to this day it's my living it's my life it's my baby, it's everything. Shout out Bobby Champagne, everyone involved in Jimmy Plates, you know, Tama, Happy Rob, everyone, everyone involved in hip-hop karaoke. Um, those days in the social were like absolutely legendary days, you know. So much so that I'm going to big myself up now. When Time Out had their final issue, they did a list of legendary London clubs, about 50 clubs, and we were in that list. And I was like, it, it felt good to be recognised. Yeah. Because everybody at some point, everybody who was anybody, went through that party on a Thursday night, social, in the basement. You know, Ed Sheeran would sit at the back hanging out. Like, all the guys now who are making waves in London, like Olani, all the guys running recess, they would party there every week. It was just Usain Bolt came and partied with us one night. <laughs> it's one, it was just every week there'd be some randomness happening. Because of where it was, it was right just off Oxford Street. It was just an amazing, amazing time. So yeah, hip-hop karaoke has always just been... So it's, it's funny, so there's some people who know me as the hip-hop karaoke guy. Yeah. And then there's a whole nother world of people, more internationally, who know me as the Southern Hospitality guy. And yeah. it'd be funny, so we'd bring some of these artists to London, and then we'd take them through hip-hop karaoke, and they'd go, Yo, what's this? Like, they'd, they'd be mind blown by how intense and epic it was on a Thursday night. And they were just, we just got them in town to do a showcase or something. Yeah. So then from there, you went more into club promoting specifically then? Yeah, I kind of did. So without the distraction of my kids were getting a little, I had a second child, and so my wife could then be at home and I could be at home. This has been the, the beauty of this whole lifestyle that, yeah, I've been totally exhausted for, <laughs> for the whole of my 30s and 40s so far. Totally exhausted. But it meant that we didn't really have childcare, but we didn't ever have to pay for childcare. Yeah. So my wife left a job, and then I kind of became really like a full-time club promoter, I would say. I yeah. had like four to five hip-hop karaoke parties every month. I'd then be doing the whole festival season. I had play of ball once a month. I started in... R&B party in Shoreditch called Rated R, which was, and you know. And another, that's part of Southern Hospitality as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's another part of Southern Hospitality. And it's just, because I'm a, a huge, huge R&B lover, you know. Um, I call myself the R&B icon, very, <laughs> very self-aggrandizingly. Because yeah. um, I love that as much as hip hop, you know. Yeah. And so I started, that was my little baby when not many people were doing, I mean, everyone's doing an R&B event now. Uh, but at the time, they weren't doing that many, certainly not in Shoreditch. And um, there was a few of us, like, few few venues doing it. Um, 
So yeah, I became a full-time club promoter. And the blog stuff, obviously, as you know, around about 2014, blog stuff really kind of dissipated. Yeah. Like websites, they sussed it out, you know? Yeah. And the streaming game came in and it really, it really changed things. Those kind of, we got new gatekeepers, Spotify and... Yeah. And I also, at the time, I started working for Apple Music. So I started... Um, doing that early playlist massive shout out to steve owen on that one um in the early days before apple music kind of materialized we were setting up a lot of their playlists for them obviously the algorithm does a lot of that now but at the time it was um yeah we did we did a lot of that stuff as well so i was at home doing a lot of that during the day i could be with my kids i was working nights getting in at five in the morning but then getting up at eight in the morning i mean it was crazy but it was it, it worked because it felt like I was doing stuff I wanted to do. So I never, I could never be mad at it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it kind of energizes you, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of club promotion. I started doing Soho Radio as well around that time. Myself, Super X, and a few other people were involved with that. We still do that now. And that's like a nice, that's like a beautiful outlet for me now, Soho Radio. So we can, I can do my like nerdy, hip-hop thing, go really deep on, yeah. a, on a pointless rap or R&B subject. And then when I go to the clubs, I can just be a club DJ. Yeah, you've, you've got different, different channels for different purposes. Yeah. And now I, now I like to do more things. I'm doing, I do a lot more sports hosting now. And I do things like, I was a judge at Red Bull Culture Clash. Um, thanks to Tom Lee again. Uh, Little things like that, a few more curation, I guess, under the banner of curation. Yeah. You know, like obviously the Apple Music was curation. And that's something I've always enjoyed doing as well. Play, I do some playlists for certain places and just trying to bring it all, all together. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you've, you've managed over the years. I mean, I, I couldn't have had your work-life balance because I need more sleep than that. <laughs> but it sounds like you've really, like manage well to navigate that yeah i mean it depends on some quality of life definitely suffers at times because yeah it definitely it, i mean big up james hamlin he's been someone throughout my i know you had him on your podcast recently a great great interview he's a great human because at certain intervals i've, I've sort of sought, sought advice from him because he's very good in the kind of business world and he's he's someone who's guided me a little bit so every so every time every time i say james i feel like i'm i'm on the treadmill i don't know where to step next yeah do i, I want to step off because i'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed and he's been very good at giving me a little bit of guidance here and there and so i've got to big him up for that i think what he's quite savvy with is he's thinking about what the payoff of the different things right. are 100 percent that because he's a, a strategist at work and yeah works in marketing and I'm a little, I'm a very emotional human. Like, I very much wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm, I, I wouldn't say I'm chaotic. I do, I do work well. I'm not unreliable or anything. I'm a very reliable person, hard worker. But I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I am, sounds really cliche, I am just here for the vibes. Yeah. <laughs> like, and so far the vibes have like served me served me fairly well so i'm a little bit almost the times i start to 
strategize a bit too much and start to overthink things and like, what's someone else doing? I should be doing what someone else is doing. Yeah. I find that it's, it's a folly. It's, it's a little bit silly for me to do that because I'm not them. And I find I get respect from some of the b biggest DJs and stuff because I am who I am. They like me for who I am. I mean, this, like someone like a Martin Too Smooth, I would argue is in my world of hip hop, R&B, that kind of world, maybe the biggest DJ in the UK right and now. And he's Romish's tour DJ as and well, he's Romish, he? And he trusts me when he's doing other stuff and he can't make a Romish date. I've had the privilege of being able to tour with Romesh Ranganathan, yeah. which is fun, a great gig for me. Mm. I, I've loved it. You know, Romesh is a fantastic guy. And that's because someone like Amartin, he knows that's something I can do. Because he knows I'll, I, I know that pocket of hip hop and I can get on in that Romesh Ranganathan world. So there's no point in me changing or trying to adapt to be, you know, I could be on TikTok doing a mashup every day. <laughs> And it, it, you know what, the bot, at the end of the day, I just like to be authentic and I have my own authenticity and it's a bit random. Like I'm a Northern guy, like, you know, who knows everything about hip hop, who also is quite into sport and all this kind of stuff. And I do, I do what I do and I just try and stay authentic to me. And I think so far that's served me well and I've never, Touch wood, I haven't come across too much opposition to that. I think people respect it. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said for realising your your own qualities. What I don't mean you specifically, I mean as as people, realising what makes you, you. Yeah, 100%. Because um, there's people I know in life that, like one of my friends recently, I've, I, I kind of realised he's caught up or has been caught up in this idea of who they think they are or think they should be. Yeah, good I mean point. I could definitely um I could definitely um say that about myself and it's something yeah. through through self work I'm gradually kind of picking away at that. Interesting. But you get caught up in I want to be this or this is what good looks like but it's about what makes you you, what makes you special. Listen, and I'm, and I'm human like everybody else. I open Instagram, some, some days it inspires me, some days it intimidates me. And I'm like, why am I not doing what that person's doing? I'm human. And I think sometimes people look at me like, Rob's got it all figured out. And I genuinely, my one thing I will say is like, I do not have anything figured out. Like, <laughs> at all, still figuring it out. And um. But I know that when I'm closest to my authentic self, that's the best me. And I perform better and I do better. I'm happier and I enjoy my DJ. And when I'm trying to force it, you know, but it's my own fault. I'm just friends with so many people who are more talented than me. I need to start rolling with some losers. <laughs> so Adam, if you know any, <laughs> please introduce me. I know one. Um, <laughs> So you're basically saying you need to be like the Fonz instead of the Ralph Mouth to go like all happy days about it, or the Richie Cunningham. Would let me give me that analogy again. So you need to be the Fonz Just rather like, than the Richie Cunningham. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. Oh, when you said the Fonz, that implied that I might be cool. I'm not cool. I know I'm not cool. 
Um, but I see what you're saying, mind state. Yeah. The Fonz mind state where it's I was confusing like, call for abilities. This is coming back to what I said about what I think good looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I like talking all this like stuff about that. It makes me wonder about... Obviously, the last couple of years with the pandemic, it's been hard for a lot of DJs. Yeah. Like, and I'm fortunate that I can speak to great people still, like a San, DJ Santero, I know he had on the yeah. podcast, who, or DJ Jonesy, or... Andy Purnell, Central Seas DJ, or Martin, who I mentioned, and they can, they send to me, and I'll give them a call, and they know, and they seem to sense when I need a little bit of a boost, or a, and you know what, and that network of people, like, it feels like a very dog-eat-dog world, the DJ world, and it is, and the club promotion world, oh my God, there's some scumbags, let, let me not make any bones about it. And for someone who's very ethical, I find it really hard, to navigate that world because I'm trying yeah. to be loyal, trying to be ethical. And I have been, you know, shat on a million, a million times. But on, on the plus side, I've met some amazing people. And my inspiration comes from my peers and from my friends. And, and I'm grateful, super grateful. So on days like today, chatting to someone like yourself, an intelligent person like yourself, chatting about myself, I mean, so how indulgent is that, you know? I feel super, super blessed. I think what's nice, although this is chatting about yourself, I think what I try and do is is make it reflective and just try and like see if there's any any anything that you've not kind of. It's nice when people come away from it going, "I've never thought about this facet of my life like that," and yeah. that's a real buzz for me. So, I mean, look, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. I Last, last, you know, like I say, through the pandemic and stuff, it's been, it's been a bit trickier. And you, ha you have questions, doubts, like, oh, God, did I do the right thing? Like, things are fine now again, obviously. Yeah. But you say, did I do the right thing? And a lot of anxiety creeps in. And you think, what if I just had a regular job? I could have just had, I would have still been working that, throughout that 12, 18 months, whatever it was. Did I, all those anxieties creep in. And it's only when I talk now, you hear me. I could talk like for hours because actually you're having the good grace to ask me questions about it. I'm excited about it. You see, and that's when I'm like, oh my God, I've done like, like loads of cool stuff. And, but in those darker moments, you don't remember that. Yeah. You're like, why have I not just got a nine to five? And I, I saw someone did an ama amazing tweet and it really made me laugh. They went, um, it was something about um, all his friends who aren't DJs they all have a, uh, a kitchen island in their house because they've all, they've all spent their time going to B&Q and making their house look immaculate. <laughs> and those DJs have just been like, sort of like living hand to mouth for, like, for the last 20 years. And it was like, it was a real symbol. And now I live in the suburbs and I've got a couple of kids and they go to people's houses. I always go to the house, I'm like going, yeah, they've got a kitchen island in their house. Yeah. Look how neat their house is. My house isn't like that because <laughs> I've been like, you know, getting up in the morning, like flying to a gig, trying to be a good parent. And bar, so have they got a complete collection of 45 King 12s? They haven't. That's right, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, in your face. Right, we're <laughs> going to have to start wrapping up because we've got to go and smash out this corporate. Let's do it. Um, just before we do, as well as say thank you, um, is there anyone specific that you think we should get on the show? And if so, why? Oh, good question. I would love you to get Martin on the show. Martin Too Smooth because that guy is smashing it beyond all recognition. I think he's actually someone who 
you give so much back to the apart from you know it's probably like you know one of making so much money doing cool stuff all those kind of things that everybody quotes unquote wants he does it with class he does it with style and he puts everyone else on and i think he's someone that he could if you got the right thing out of him he could lay the blueprint that that almost could be like a little capsule for people to learn from so yeah whereas man's just a bit of a waffle <laughs> whereas his would actually be super useful yours is a great kind of memoir i think there's, a memoir. You, sorry, there's been yeah. a lot of stuff in there a lot of different places i've thoroughly enjoyed this oh re- thank you so much for having me on love the podcast been recommended to a lot of people and yeah and if i do have one bit of kind of advice to people is just be authentic and enjoy it amazing and where can people find you online yep at R-O-B-P-U-R-S-E-Y. I have to spell my name because I've got Rob Percy. They always spell it P-E-R. So it's at R-O-B-P-U-R-S-E-Y on pretty much everything. I am Rob Percy in real life and online. Awesome. Thanks very much. Brilliant. Thanks, Adam. All right, man. Let's go do this. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at onceadjpodcast. Take care and we'll speak to you soon.